0: You won't ever regret that you didn't spend more time at the office. How many have you heard something like that? Uh, rather, the regrets you will have will be on a far different scale. Instead, you will regret that you didn't spend more time with your kids. Or you will regret that you didn't spend more time with God. Or that you weren't engaged in His work more. you will regret the sins of your youth. But you won't regret the time you didn't spend at the office. You see, death has a way of focusing us on our priorities, which sadly, quite frankly, are often learned too late in life. I think that's why Jonathan Edwards, when he wrote his resolutions in his youth, focused so many times upon his death. Jonathan Edwards, I'm not sure if you know this, but wrote out, I forget how many, hundred or so resolutions, they're worthy to be read. Um, But he, he oftentimes in these resolutions came back again to the theme about, I want to focus my attention on the day I die that I might live today for that day. For instance, resolution number nine, he says, Resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. He wants often to think about the day of his death. Or resolution number seven, it says, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid of to do if we're the last hour of my life. There's a great way of focusing on the last hour of your life has to do with how you live now. And Jonathan Edwards just wanted to remind himself, I want to do now what I won't be ashamed or afraid to do the hour of my death. Or one more, resolve, number 17. Resolve that I will so live as I shall wish that I had done when I come to die. In other words, I want to live today so that when the day comes, I come to die, I can look back and say, yes, I've lived the way that I want to live. Well, we're going to learn this morning from one who was facing his own death and one who everything was coming into clarity As he was approaching his death. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're finishing now our exposition of 2 Timothy. Fourteen weeks in a row, we've been right through this epistle. We've seen the theme, is fight the fight, fan the flame and fight the fight. And Timothy and Paul is right here at the end of his letter. He is um, right at the border of writing, maybe these were even the last words he wrote. We don't exactly know but it was the last words that we have recorded for us in the Bible. He's got a proper perspective in his death and his priorities are really there for Timothy to behold and for us to behold. Priorities in his death is what this has. He says this to Timothy. He says, Timothy, verse 9, 2 Timothy 4, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching." At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Creep Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you. Also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. My message this morning is entitled, What Matters Most? It's really what Paul is Setting forth here in this portion of 2 Timothy. He's down to his last days. He's alone. He's in prison in great need. Reflecting upon the things that he he really needs. Reflecting upon the things that he really wants. And we find two things that are really what matter most. And the first one is this. Faithful friends. Faithful friends are what matters most. You can see that there in verse 9 when he says to Timothy, Make every effort to come to me soon. There's an urgency in these words. Some translations say, Do your best. Right? right, Just try as hard as you can to make every effort please, to come to me because, Timothy, I want to be with you. I want to see you. You are a faithful friend. Uh, up until this point in Second Timothy, Paul's really been seeking to help Timothy, giving him counsel as to how, to how to help him in his role as a pastor of the church in Ephesus. But right here on this verse, the, um, the door swings. The, the hinge turns because at this point right here, Paul is telling Timothy how Timothy can help Paul, and coming to him and being with him on his last days on earth would be a big help to the Apostle Paul. And just let me tell you that you want faithful friends when you come to die. And I guarantee you in your dying days, you want your friends who've known you to be around you to encourage you. Aids in the nursing home can give some comfort but nothing like the comfort that a faithful friend will bring. And that's what Paul wants here of, of Timothy. He wants Timothy's companionship. He says, make every effort to come to me soon. And, and even as if to, to heighten his desire, he says in verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. Winter's coming. Now, we don't know whether he wrote this in October and said, hey, it's coming, or whether he wrote it in July, but, but winter is coming and he wants Timothy to come soon to meet him. And they haven't just come, these pleas haven't come in chapter 4 alone. His, his desire came back in chapter 1, verse 4, where he talked about Timothy and constantly remembering you my prayers night and day. In verse 4, he says, longing to see you. Timothy, I want to see you. You are a faithful friend, and I know that you can be a big help to me in the final hours of my life. Now, we, we get a hint of what kind of friend Timothy was in Philippians chapter 2. When Paul is in prison on another occasion, Timothy was with him and Paul wanted to send him to Philippi to help him minister to the Philippians. But listen to what he said. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. He said this, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. In other words, Timothy is right beside me. There's nobody else in the world that has a kindred spirit like Timothy has. And I know that if he goes to you, he's going to serve you and help you, but I can't let him go. Because he's too valuable for me right now in prison. But now it's reversed. Timothy is away, and Paul is lacking what Timothy could bring of being a, a faithful friend. And Paul longs for Timothy to come and help him in his loneliness. Now, we see here in verse 10 that, that Paul is not totally alone. He has one person with him. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus is to Only Luke is with me. And you can feel Paul's pain. In fact, even in verse 10 starts with a reason. Come to me, Timothy, soon, because they're all gone. Demas is gone. Titus is gone. Crescens is gone. Uh, uh, Luke is the only one with me. Now, no doubt, Dr. Luke, who had been with Paul other times in jail, was ministering to his physical needs as he saw fit, as he had needs, was there. But these other three had left. And and by the way that things are said here, I think they left in a different way. Because it says here in verse 10, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. If the others had loved the present world and deserted him, he could have said, so also, Crescens has deserted the world and Titus. But he simply says, no, Crescens to the Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. I think there's a distinction in how these men have left. Uh, my suspicion is that Crescens and Titus have left for ministry reasons. Ministry in Galatia and ministry in, in Dalmatia. But, but Demas has left for a different reason. Demas has left because he loved the present world. Let that sink in a little bit. Bottom line, Tim Demas was not concerned for Paul's welfare. He was concerned for his own welfare. He loved this world and the pleasure this world could bring, and so he left Paul in his hour of greatest need and headed off to Thessalonica. Demas is one of the saddest stories in all the Bible, ranks there just below Judas. He's mentioned three times in Paul's epistles. Once in Philemon, once in Colossians, and once here in 2 Timothy. In Philemon and Colossians, he's identified as a faithful co-worker with Paul. One who worked right alongside Paul. And yet, here, it's much different. Here, Demas proved himself an unfaithful friend. Now, we don't know how it is that he loved the world. Maybe he loved the possessions of the world. Something he wasn't going to have with the Apostle Paul. Paul was so poor that he asked for a coat to be brought to him. He couldn't even purchase a coat. Maybe Paul uh, Demas loved the comforts of this world. Something that he didn't have as a companion of Paul. He was there with him in the prison or close by. The, the comforts of life weren't very good there. But, or maybe he loved his reputation in this world. And something he couldn't have with the Apostle Paul. I mean, back in chapter 1, Paul talked about Onesiphorus. Who often refreshed me, he says. He was not ashamed of my chains, but when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. He said, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onisiphorus on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Here was Onisiphorus asking around Hey, do you know where the Apostle Paul is? Apostle Paul is in prison. Where is he? He could get in trouble for identifying himself with Paul. He didn't care. He would have shame brought upon his name for associating with the pastor with the Apostle Paul, but Onisophorus didn't care. But maybe Demas cared and loved this world, loved his reputation. Maybe the Demas loved his life. And to associate with Paul meant maybe he would die a martyr's death right alongside Paul and he didn't want that. So maybe he left because he, he loved living, he loved breathing. Now we don't know for sure how Demas loved the world but somehow it had to do with this call to suffering that comes to every believer in Christ. 2 Timothy 3:12 all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Anybody who's associating with Paul would suffer hardship. As the call is in chapter 2 verse 3 suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. A- anyone who associates with Paul would would tend to be maybe ashamed. He says don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me as prisoner. Right? Face the shame and it's okay because We're going to be ashamed for Christ's sake. I can do that. Demas is unwilling to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Unwilling to be a faithful friend to Paul and deserting him in his hour of need. And and there's some application here, obviously, for us all. What sort of friend are you? Are you a Demas-like friend? Are you a Timothy-like friend? Will you love the world more than you love Christ? Will you love the world more than you love the followers of Christ? Will you desert your friends and prove unfaithful to the Lord in this process? If you can think in your mind even now, you know of people who have been like that. Maybe at one time served the Lord right alongside you maybe. And yet now want nothing to do with Jesus. Have been Demas and have forsaken and have left but don't think it can't happen to you. Don't, don't be secure to think, what do you mean it can't happen to me? Look, I'm faithful to the Lord. Look at all the things that I'm doing. Well, Demas probably could match you. serving so, I mean, as a fellow worker right alongside Paul being called a fellow worker, laboring for the Lord, and yet somehow the lure of the world pulled him away. And my suspicion is it pulled him away slowly. as the lure of the world always does. Right? The, the office employee who embezzles thousands of dollars starts with one dollar. The man engaged in pornography or woman engaged in pornography starts with one look. And yet, Timothy, Demas, somehow, with the lure, started pulling him away. And he joined the ranks of those in the Bible who started well but finished poorly. Men like Demas, like Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Or men like King Asa, who turned to the king of Aram rather than relying upon the Lord. Or like Solomon, who forsook the Lord, though he was the wisest man who ever walked the earth. Don't think that you are immune. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you. You're dependent upon God every step of the way of your Christian life. I would say this. Identify your weakness. Plead with the Lord for strength to fight every day. And fight until the end that you might be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Let's not be Demas' Well, let's move on. Verse 11, he says, Only Luke is with me. But he says, here's another faithful friend. Pick up Mark. And bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. And let me tell you, as discouraging as Demas is, Mark is that encouraging. Because Demas was one who went down, but Mark is one who went up. Demas is one who had successes in the early part of life and failures later. Mark had failures in his early part of life, but successes failure, but successes later. First know of Mark, he's also called John. It was recorded in Acts chapter 12. Peter's in prison. Herod had just put James to death. They saw that it pleased the crowd, so he thought to put Peter to death, threw him in prison. The next day, he was going to pull him out and kill him just as so he'd killed James. So, there was this prayer meeting going on. The church had gathered in the house of Mary. The mother of John is also called Mark. So, in Mark's mother's house, or in the house where he grew up, there was this prayer meeting, praying for Peter... To be released from the prison, and what a prayer meeting that was! Because an angel of the Lord appeared to Peter in prison and led him out to safety miraculously, and starts knocking on the door where they were praying. It's like, well, like one of those prayer meetings. Where God really answered their prayers, though they didn't believe it. It was it was an amazing prayer meeting, and John got to see that. John Mark got to see all of that. Probably talks about the environment which Mark was raised. Uh, Raised in a godly home, much like Timothy was. Which explains one of the reasons why Paul was willing to take Mark, though knowing him maybe for only a little bit, upon the first missionary journey. And off he went with Paul and Barnabas in the missionary journey to be their helper. But after they'd got out only a little ways, Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas, returned home to Jerusalem in many ways, Mark is just like Demas. Having deserted the Apostle Paul in his hour of need, and the abandonment made such, made such an impact on Paul, when it came time to embark upon the second missionary journey, Paul says, Mark can't come with us. He abandoned us before. And Barnabas said, Yes, he can. Let's bring him along. And Paul said, no, he can't. Barnabas said, yes, he can. And there was such a rift between them and such a chasm that was so great that Barnabas went by himself and took Mark, sailed away to Cyprus. Whereas Paul chose Silas and left by land traveling north through Syria and Cilicia. These were not good days for Mark. Even though he was going on the second missionary journey, it wasn't good. He wasn't supported by the church. wasn't supported by Paul. Paul and Barnabas just kind of did their own thing because of what happened in in Mark's life. But then at some point, something happened in the life of Mark. We don't know what, but somehow he made a turn and became faithful to the Lord. I think it was just little things. He just started serving the Lord in the little things. God says that those who are faithful in little, God will give them much. And I think he just started there and they started getting more and more and more. In fact, do you know that Mark then eventually wrote the Gospel of Mark, and uh, that just doesn't happen overnight. There's a lot of research that comes in that, a lot of commitment following the Lord. As he followed around Peter and, and talked with him much. By the way, Mark is the next book we're going to study at Rock Valley Bible Church. Probably start in January. We'll just go verse by verse through Mark. Probably fast is what we're going to do. Um, kind of get a good overview of that book so you can start reading that book if you want. But it all came from Mark, and I think it's because he was restored and. In fact, even Mark made such a turn in his life that at the end of Timothy's life, he's able to say this, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he's useful to me for service. Things had changed. On one hand, he wasn't useful, but now he was useful because repentance had taken place, forgiveness had been granted, reconciliation had been made. They now were on the same team. Mark had become a faithful friend of Paul even though at one point he wasn't. I just think of application here. I mean, the dynamics of life is that you will rift with people. You you will. Um, If you live long enough, you'll see that. You'll know that. You know, conflicts is the reality of a sin filled, living on a sin filled earth. Disagreements will happen. People will let you down. People become unfaithful. But listen, if Paul and Mark got it back together, we can get it back together. It takes God. It takes repentance. It takes forgiveness. It takes love. It takes humility. But reconciliation is possible. And we don't see the process here. Philemon is a good book to read and study if you want to see the process. That's a good book for seeing reconciliation there. But here we don't see the process, but we see the fruit of it. We see two men reconciled, fully engaged in ministry together. We see the through the gospel, working out in their lives as they can deal rightly with each other. I, just, I just think of how, how many times kids can be interested in their own thing, and how much better it is for children to, to bend and give to other children to get along better. And sometimes adults, we can act like kids and say, "This is mine," and, and separate over trivial things. I just say, may we at Rock Valley Bible Church know this sort of reconciliation with the drifts that happen as a family lives together closely. Well, there's Mark. He's a a great story. We could preach a message on on his own. Well, we come, verse 12, to Tychicus, another faithful friend. In Ephesians 6.21, Tychicus is called a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. In Colossians 4, verse 7, Paul calls him a beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. And these descriptions just just show how how faithful Tychicus was. being A faithful minister, a faithful servant, a fellow bondservant. And, And I believe that Tychicus would have stayed in Rome with Paul, like Luke, like Timothy will, until his dying day, as long as Paul wanted him, had not Paul sent him to Ephesus. That's what verse 12 says. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Now, on the one hand, I think that Tychicus is bringing Second Timothy in hand. He's done this before. He brought the letter of Colossians to those in Colossae. He brought the letter of Ephesians to those in Ephesus and maybe other places. But he was like a mailman, if you will, But I think that Tychicus is doing more than just delivering the mail. I think Tychicus also is going to Ephesus to ease the pastoral burden for Timothy so that Timothy can come. That's what I believe is happening. So I believe faithful giftedness of Tychicus is there. And and he was ready and willing to stay with Paul. But if Paul would send him to Ephesus, he'd go to Ephesus to stay in Ephesus for a while so Timothy could be with Paul because Paul wanted Timothy there. What humility that takes, huh? He knows that Timothy will minister to Paul better, so he'll go to Ephesus gladly. Well, in verse 13, we see Paul dealing with some administrative things as well. When Timothy comes to see Paul, he needs to bring some things. This is a faithful friend. A a faithful friend will bring what you need. The demands aren't high here. They're simple. When you, bring, when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Here we see help for his body and help for his soul. His coat to warm him physically and his scriptures to engage him spiritually. Somehow his cloak was left in Troas with this man named Carpus. We don't know anything about Carpus. We do know that Troas is, is a couple hundred miles, 200 miles or so north of Ephesus, So he'd have to to travel up north 200 miles to get this cloak and then travel down south then again to be able to sail off to Rome. We don't know why he left this coat there. Um, Some say that Paul was arrested very quickly and therefore didn't have time to get his uh, belongings together and just whisked off to Rome um, others think maybe he left his cloak up in Troas, was, was down for the summertime, planning on being back up there for the winter when he'd need it, but was taken by the, the Romans when he was down there. We, we, we just don't know. Maybe he lent it to Carpus. Maybe there was a need for somebody, and he said, uh, Yeah, I'll give you my coat. We don't know why, but whatever. Paul wanted Timothy to pick up this coat, and Timothy's willing to go 200 miles out of the way to pick up this coat. Uh, even in my family, recently, uh, I read through the internet blogosphere, I read of my, my niece who was traveling off uh, for a weekend in Grand Rapids and she was going on the way there and got about a, an hour and a half out and realized she didn't have her driver's license. So her dad, being gracious, drove out to bring her driver's license to her. It's what love does. Love will bring things and do things. And then, when he got there, this is a very funny story, he got there and he said, you know what, Emily? I forgot the driver's license. <laughs> so they drove back home and got the driver's license and, and went on. But that's an act of love. That's a faithful dad, for sure. And this is a faithful man. Timothy was. To go out of the way to bring this coat. As I mentioned earlier, it shows the desperation of Paul's circumstances. He couldn't just buy a coat. I mean, how easy would that be? Can you just... He's by a coat. You know, he's got this coat. I think there's a clue, though, that maybe he wants him to get up to Troas because he's got some other things in Troas. He's got some books of his up there. He's got some parchments of his. And maybe that's why he got him up there. He says, Bring the cloak which I left to Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the, the parchments. Maybe his books were there. The books are referring to the scrolls. Some of you translate it say scrolls. These are the papyrus uh, written on, on paper like we have today. The, the parchments are referring to a more expensive scroll, maybe written more on, um, on animal hides, vellum, uh, which would be longer lasting. But no doubt, whatever these are, however they, they form, they're talking about the Scriptures. They're talking about the Bible material. And while spending his long days in prison, Paul wanted nourishment for his soul in the Scriptures. If you think about this for a bit, this ought to teach us much. If the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, I think he wrote a quarter of the New Testament, if he needs the Scripture, how much more do we need the Scripture? If the one who wrote the Bible needs the Bible, we need the Bible to nourish our soul. I I could do no better than to quote Charles Spurgeon, so I'll quote Spurgeon, his famous sermon, Paul, his cloak, and his books. The Apostle says to Timothy, and so he says to every preacher, give yourself unto reading. The man who never reads will never be read. The man who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. Brothers and sisters, what is true of ministers is true of all people. You need to read. Renounce as much as you can all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritan writers and expositions of the Bible. We are quite persuaded that the very best way for you to be sending your leisure is to be either reading or praying. You may get much instruction from books, which afterwards you may use as a true weapon of your Lord in your Lord and Master's service. And Paul cries, Bring the books! And Spurgeon then admonishes, join the cry. Bring the books. Bring the books. I need them. As a pastor, of course, it's easy for me to bring the books because I love books. I love reading books. But what's true of pastors ought to be true of people as well. And I say, is this your cry? Can you say with Job, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Can you say that? He cried with David, your loving kindness is better than life. And where do we learn the loving kindness of the Lord? We learn of it through the Scriptures. Do you live on bread alone? Or do you live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord? Did you cry? Bring the books! Bring the books! Let me just remind you what the books contain. They are Scriptures. They are all Scripture. And all Scripture, if you look back in chapter 3, verse 16, it says, all Scripture is inspired by God. That is, it's breathed out of God. It is the very words of God that we hold in our hands. And this Scripture is not only God's Word, but it's also helpful, it's profitable, it is useful. It is useful for teaching to telling us what we need to believe. It is useful for reproof, showing us where we are wrong. It is helpful and profitable for correction, right? directing us in the right way. It's helpful and profitable for training in righteousness. That's training to keep us in the right way. Our, our Bible is sufficient for teaching us and training us for every good deed, sufficient guides in our lives. So are you reading your Bible? Are you systematically, consistently and I, may I add, affectionately reading your Bible. Because you can have your Bible before you in such a way that you're just kind of reading the stuff on the pages, but realize this is God's letter for us that we can read. I just encourage you all to be readers and to read the books. Read the Bible and read books that explain the Bible in, in a way with light reading. Let's get some good reading that explains the Bible to us. That's what we need. But let me ask you this way. When it comes to your final days... What will you seek to read? You will only desire the Bible if you've been reading the Bible today. Don't think that some magical thing is going to pop off in your mind that I'm going to say, oh, I want the books then, when you don't want the books now. But the greater extent you want the books now, you will want the books then. At this point, I just want to share the story of William Tyndale because there's a great parallel between what, what took place in his life the Apostle Paul's. Tyndale lived in the 1500s. He worked long and hard and his passion was to see the Scriptures translated in the, in the vulgar language, just in the English of the day. And he was driven by the desire that he said the boy driving at the plow would know more Scriptures and know them better than even the Pope himself. That was his driving desire with the Scriptures. He was in prison, awaiting his trial for heresy. you know what his crime was? Among other things, this was his top crime, believing that faith alone justifies. That's what he believed. It's what we all believe in the Lord Jesus, that the faith in Jesus alone is what justifies. Faith in Christ alone is what forgives our sins. But he was living in a Catholic-dominated era where no, it would be faith, yes, in God, but also works that you do and faith in the Pope rather than faith and trust in the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. He was on trial for heresy. And as he's on trial, the only letter that we have remains of him in his own hand. We have this letter someplace in the museum, someplace. You can get a facsimile of it someplace on the Internet, I'm sure. He writes to the prison governor. And listen now to the parallels with Paul. Paul was probably in his mind when he wrote this, but it it kind of shows maybe more expansive what Paul wanted in verse 13 here. Tyndale writes, I believe, right worshipful, that you are not aware of what may have been determined concerning me. You're not unaware of what may have been determined concerning me, rather. Wherefore, I beg your lordship that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissionary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted by perpetual catarrh, which is a mucus, illness, coughing, or who knows, stuffiness, which is increased in this cell. A warmer coat also for the one I have is very thin. A piece of cloth too to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt and if he'd be good enough to send it, I have also with him some leggings, thicker cloth to put on above. He also has some warmer nightcaps and I ask you to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed a wearisome task to sit here in the dark alone. And he says, but most of all, I beg you, I beseech your clemency to be urged with the commissionary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew grammar, and the Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it is for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter... I will be patient, abiding the will of God, to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit I pray may ever direct your heart. Amen. He's in difficult circumstances. He's just asking for a little bit warmer clothes to wear in his cold cell, especially with approaching winter, he's getting scared of that. And a Hebrew grammar and text that he might read deeply. Getting your Hebrew grammar is a little bit different than whatever, some allegorical Christian something story. He's reading deeply. That's what Paul wanted. He just wanted the Scriptures to save, to help him, just meditate in his mind for his soul. Less than a year after he wrote that letter, he was executed for his crimes. Strangled at the stake and then burned upon the stake. I say both Tyndale both and the Apostle Paul show us really what matters most in life. They're in prison for their faith, awaiting execution. They wrote letters just requesting, right? A little physical comfort and some nourishment for their soul. And and in your last days, that's, that's what you're going to want. You're going to want a little physical comfort and you're going to want nourishment for your souls. I guarantee in your last days, you're not going to be wanting to read the Rockford Register Star. Time... or Time, or Mark Twain, or Socrates, you're going to want to have the Scriptures read to you. I've been with some dying saints and just opened the Bible. It's all I have. So I've come to those who are dying. You know. What else do I have to bring? You don't want to waste your time with the trivialities. Of the, you, you want to catch that which is eternal, the Word of God. And you will only find comfort in those books. So Paul wanted books... And Paul needed a faithful friend to bring him books. Well, what matters most in life? First of all, faithful friends. Second point this morning is a faithful God. i kind of slide into that as we speak here of an enemy. Verse 14, Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. We're going to see that just how Paul dealt with Alexander was really trusting in the Lord for the matters of Alexander. And again, with him, there's much we don't know. Alexander's a real common name. It might be the Alexander spoken about in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. who suffered shipwreck of his faith, perhaps. We're not exactly sure. But we know that Alexander hurt Paul. We don't know how. But if you put some things together, you can start figuring out what happened. Paul entered Ephesus. A.D. whatever. 56, 54... 60 something. Like he entered Ephesus, it was a pagan city dominated by the goddess Artemis. Artemis was the huge thing right in the middle of the city that everybody was very proud of. They, they worshipped. In fact, it brought a lot of income for them because people would make pilgrimages to Ephesus to worship this goddess Artemis, and it brought wealth to the people of Ephesus, especially the craftsmen who craft the idols that people would come to Ephesus to purchase and buy to take home so they might have their little uh, Artemis goddesses in their houses. Well, when Paul came to Ephesus, revival broke out, especially among those who practiced magic and exorcism. There's a story in Acts chapter 19 about the big bonfire they have where all the magicians and exorcists came and brought their books and threw them into the fire, so much so that even they they tallied up how much money's worth of books was that? 50,000 pieces of silver. The Word of God was mighty and prevailing there in Ephesus. A revival was taking place. It didn't sit well with the craftsmen in Ephesus, they knew full well their livelihood was at stake. And so one of them, Demetrius, gathered together all the workmen and he said this, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon our business. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there a danger of this trade of ours falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. That was the attitude of the craftsmen in Ephesus. They were worried about their livelihood. They were worried about the reputation of their city, about this great Artemis, by the way, who has gone by the wayside. God's proved her false, that's for sure. And you can imagine in the passion and anger of Alexander, the coppersmith, a craftsman in Ephesus, and his anger may well have been directed right at Paul, who brought the gospel to Ephesus, who worked tirelessly to propagate it through the world, and Alexander, I'm sure, saw it as a way in which he was cutting away at his nest egg. Now, I know enough about people and their clinging to money. So I've talked to Phil Gus, if I've talked to Phil Gusky in the past about people and their money. He says, you start touching people in their pocketbooks and they become very sensitive. They become very testy. Right, Phil? Right, and their, When their nest egg starts losing in the market, people get really antsy. Years of hard work brought them where they are and they want to protect that with all of their heart, all of their soul and all their might because that's where their, their future lies. And I believe such is the case with Alexander's copper a coppersmith. The security rested in the prosperity of his business. The gospel is a threat to his business. And so we see in verse 15 that he vigorously opposed our teaching. The gospel wasn't good for his financial well-being, so it's cut down the gospel, cut down the source of that gospel in whatever way possible. Now, we don't know what Alexander did with Paul, but we know that it was hurtful, it was harmful. Look at verse 14 again. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. It was hurtful. Paul's response to Alexander, I'm sure, was like chapter 2, 24, 25, and 26. The Lord's bonds must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. I'm sure that's how it was with Alexander. Alexander coming upon him, quarreling with him. I don't think he quarreled with him. I think he just gave him a straight answer, a smooth answer, a patient answer. He was wronged, and I'm sure that Paul was gentle when he was wronged. He was patient with them. He was correcting them in opposite. He didn't step down at all from the truth, but he brought it front, straight, and center. And I think he was praying for Alexander that God would grant to him repentance. Now, obviously, repentance wasn't granted because it says there in verse 14, the Lord, I'm sorry, be on guard, verse 15. Timothy, you be on guard against him yourself. See, he's still a danger. He hasn't repented. So I think what Paul is telling Timothy even here is he says just just be non quarrelsome, be kind, patient when wrong. Bring the truth straight front and center. Be right. Be as innocent as doves. We're saying, but be as wise as serpent. Know that this man is is a danger to you. But the key to everything about dealing with Alexander is his perspective with the Lord. How he needed a faithful Lord. He said the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Kind of you can almost feel the the burden being lifted off of his shoulders. Paul knew the Scriptures, the vengeance is mine, I will repay, having quoted it on another occasion. And he trusted that Scripture. God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so, so Paul basically said, okay, God, you, you will repay Alexander for all the wrong he did to me. I don't need to repay that. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. I think there's a peace of mind that he gives Paul. And it will give you all peace of mind as well when you deal with conflicts with non-believers who resist the Gospel. Because in life, like I said, you're going to have conflicts with many people. You're going to have conflicts with some unsafe people. If you put the Gospel right front and center in relationships, you're going to have conflicts. People are not going to like that. They will resist you with that. And there will be conflicts that you can't resolve when it centers around the truth of the Gospel because you can confess your sins to others. You can bend with your preferences but you can't bend the truth. If others aren't believing the gospel, they won't back down either, and a permanent rift may easily develop between you and them. They may seek to do your best harm, do harm. But the best thing to do in that situation is let God deal with that situation. If you do that, you'll remove all bitterness, all anger, all wrath from that individual. And that comes with Alexander. I don't think that Paul was bitter in any way towards Alexander. I think he just says, hey, he did me much harm. God will repay him. And I just say this. Thinking about the final judgment when God repays everybody exactly according to their deeds as a wonderful way of removing bitterness and anger from us. Because we no longer have to deal with trying to punish them ourselves. God will do that very well and perfectly. Thank you very much. John Piper says it this way. One powerful way of overcoming bitterness and revenge is to have faith in the promise that God will settle accounts with of our offenders so that we don't have to. Just give it to God. says God's can deal with it. Chris Brawns says this. If you feel yourself wrestling with bitterness, then focus more intently on the glorious God. <clears throat> Savor the providence of God. He's in control of all things. He's perfectly just and cannot be unjust. Bitterness begins when we've been treated unfairly. But if we believe that God will accomplish justice and if we are simultaneously confident that God is working all things together for our good, if that's our center, then we'll beat the stuffings out of bitterness every time. He says. So we just trust God's vengeance. It's just off us. And that's why you need to really trust in a a faithful God. That's what Paul's doing. He's trusting in the goodness, the faithfulness of God to be true to his promises. And he is a just God. And with Alexander, who's, who's mocked God, who's hurt Paul, God will deal with that. And so what matters most to Paul at the end of his life? I think it's the faithfulness of God. And what matters most in your life as well is the faithfulness of God. In your life, people will wrong you. You will be treated unjustly. That's just how it is. Rather than fighting for a right, so you can just trust that God is going to give it, deal with the matter, finally. Don't carry it around yourself. Don't live as a bitter person. Don't try to get even. It will eat you up. You will eat others up if you're bitter. Nobody wants to be around an unhappy person. Nobody wants to be around an unpleasant person. And you won't have any faithful friends around there either. So just trust your faithful Lord with these matters. That he'll make all things right in the end, because a faithful God is what matters most. And again, you see that in verse 16, 17, and 18. But here you see it from a different perspective. Here it's not who, unbelievers who wrong you, here it's believers who wrong you. Look what Paul says. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. And not be counted against them. Picture Paul. He's standing trial before Roman authority. He's got other people accusing him of the wrong that he's done. And picture Paul defending his actions, claiming his ignorance, claiming a pure conscience. Pictures many accusers all around accusing Paul. Paul, the one voice, is saying, no, I'm innocent. And nobody around there to support Paul. Even the Jewish law code said by two or three witnesses, every fact will be confirmed when Paul is just standing on his own it's just he said, she said. And it's all these people said. And he was all alone. It was not good. That hurt Paul immensely, I'm sure, as he was surrounded by Demas-like friends. A faithful friend was nowhere to be found. And Paul could have become bitter. He could have become vengeful. He could have called God to judge them. But note afresh how Paul deals with the hurts of others. With Alexander, he says the Lord will repay him. Look how he deals with believers who weren't supporting him. He said this, No one supported me But all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Rather than trusting his fellow believers to the judgment of God, he entrusts his fellow believers to the grace of God. And that's really what grace is. It's the sort of grace that God extends. I think of Peter. It was exactly like this, right? He didn't support Jesus in the day of His name, the day of trial. He didn't stand up for Jesus and testify for Him. Rather, he cowardly denied Him. And yet, Peter later received grace. This grace that, that God is wanting to extend to those who desert Him is the same grace that Paul extended to Mark. Yeah, he, he denied Him. He was unfaithful one time. He, he couldn't handle the Lord at one time. But he came back and Paul extended grace to him there. It's the grace I think that Paul would extend to Demas should Demas come back. I encourage you to extend such grace to believers who disappoint you. And, and, do, it, and do it this way. Think about this. As if they're a believer in Christ, Christ has died for our sins, died for my sins, died for their sins. Yes, one of the sins that Christ died for was the very sin in which they hurt, hurt you by deserting you or whatever. And now are you going to require that again of God? I think Paul says, no, I recognize God. You died for that very sin and God may you be gracious and merciful to them. That's what he's saying. He's recognizing that God's work of grace and kindness toward another person, even the sins that hurt us, and that changes everything. That, then you don't have to have bitterness in your disappointment. You can have grace in your disappointment. And as God has forgiven you by grace, pray for God to forgive them by grace. And though Paul lacked a faithful friend, what he, yeah, he still had a faithful God all around him. And though they all deserted me, Paul continues, verse 17, but they deserted me, but, contrast, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Paul lived through difficulty. He would experienced the faithful hand of God in his difficulty. He experienced the strengthening hand of God, even in verse 17, he experienced the rescuing hand of God. I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Now, we don't know what lion he was referring to. We don't know what rescue he was referring to because there were so many lions. And there are so many rescues. I mean, maybe Paul was referring to the time when his life was threatened at Damascus and he escaped the city only by, by being lowered down by a basket out of the wall in order to get out. Maybe that was the lion he was talking about. Maybe he was talking about the lion at the time his life was threatened at Jerusalem. And he was led away by the brethren before the angry mob of Jews could get after him. Maybe Paul is referring to the insistence when he was stoned and left for dead by those from Lystra. God rescued him out of that. Maybe Paul is referring to a time which it was found out that people had pledged, hey, we're not going to eat or drink anymore until we kill Paul. And it got found out to the Romans and he had an escort of 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen in night from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Maybe that's the lion's mouth he's talking about. Maybe Paul is referring to the time he appealed to Caesar and was given safe travel to Rome under the protecting hand of the Roman government. He may have been talking about one of these instances or maybe all these instances. We don't know, but we just do know this, that God was faithful to Paul for years. As he looks back upon his life, he says this, that God was faithful. That... He was with me. Though, though they deserted, God stood with me. And God strengthened me. He was the witness that he was lacking. And, and God was faithful to Paul. The very first words about Paul and the life in which he was saved on the road to Damascus, Ananias came. and said that God saved Paul with a purpose to bear God's name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. That's what his very first purpose was. And here, that's exactly what he did. God strengthened me so that, through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear. He was told the day of his conversion, the three days after his conversion, he's still blind, I asked him, you're going to come and bear my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the all the earth. And that's what he did. The proclamation might be fully accomplished. God strengthened Paul through his whole life. And Paul felt that strengthening hand of God in his life. And now at the end of his life, he can trust the faithfulness of God. That's what verse 18 is about. I know I've got a faithful God. He's, he's proved Himself in the past even when no one else did. He's one. He can take vengeance upon Alexander. Fine. He can give grace. And I know that in the future, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And He will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And in the end, really, this is what matters most is that you have a faithful God who can bring you safely to His heavenly kingdom. Paul had seen the faithful hand of God in his life and now he's in a position to trust the faithful hand of God to come for the rest of his life. It really is what matters most. And this really, by the way, is the gospel right here. See, the God who saved us will rescue us, will protect us, will guard us, will bring us to Himself. As Romans 8 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And what God starts, He finishes, right? For those He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son that we might be firstborn among many brethren. And these He predestined, He called, and these He called, He justified, and these He justified, these He glorified. That's all past tense. That everything that God did, He's going to carry and brute because God views our salvation as (coughs) links on a chain which are all connected and he will bring to the Philippians. He said, "He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it." That's the gospel. God doesn't save us by His grace only to let us continue in our works and our efforts. God saves us by His grace, and He keeps us by His grace from first to last. We begin in God's hands. He keeps us in His hands. He preserves us in His hands, and delivers us into His kingdom. I mean, there's the idea, right? He's going to bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. We are in the hands of Jesus. We're in the hands of the Father. And the devil can't snatch out other hand. He's going to take us and bring us to his kingdom. That's, that's the good news of the gospel that we have. We have a faithful God. And you're going to want that God when it comes to the day that you die. I love Richard Sibbs. the picture he said long ago. He said, When a child falleth not, it's not from the mother's... Is it not? Let's say again. When the child falleth not, it is from the mother's holding the child... Not the child holding the mother. So it is that God's holding of us, knowing of us, embracing of us, and justifying us that makes the state firm and not ours. God is the one who does it. And God is our faithful God who brings us into the end. And that's the God that Paul was trusting in his final days. He is trusting that God will rescue him from every evil deed and bring Him safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So what matters most in this life? Faithful friends and a faithful God. Verses 19 through 22, we have a microcosm on my message this morning. We see faithful friends and we see a faithful God. So look for the friends really quick. 19. Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisaphorus greet them. These are faithful friends. Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, they were Faithful ministers. They they were faithful servants of Christ. They were a married couple together ministering for the Lord. In fact, they were tent makers, helped Paul earn a living, making tents. And they spread the Gospel in every other chance they had. Onesiphorus helped Paul by seeking him out in Rome and not being ashamed of his chains. Other faithful friends. Then we see 20... Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Presumably, these are faithful friends who would be with Paul, but they stayed for various reasons. Erastus was left at Corinth, probably to minister. Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. You catch that. The Apostle Paul, with healing powers, left a man sick. These people who think that they can, whatever, the healing all goes on and they can heal at will. Paul, even Apostle Paul left somebody sick. But they were faithful friends as well. But Trophimus was sick. He couldn't continue on in his ministry. And then he hears from those in Rome. People in Rome are greeting him. Maybe these were outside the prison someplace helping you know, maybe the people at the church. I'm not sure. He says, Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. These are just some more faithful friends that were certainly around Paul in some extent. They're sending Timothy back. Greetings back to Timothy. And we see a faithful God in verse 22, right? The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Again, returning to the Lord at the end of his epistles, just saying, God, be with your spirit. It's a prayer. It's a benediction. It's a good word. May God be there. And then finally, grace be with you. What a great way to end the letter. Entrusting Timothy to a faithful God, right? What a great place for us to end in trusting ourselves to the grace of God as we close The book of 2 Timothy, the journey has been well worth it for our souls. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for these weeks we've had in 2 Timothy. How rich they've been. I thank you how I I even know the book better. I pray you'd strengthen us to fan the flame. You'd strengthen us to fight the fight. Lord, that we would be a a faithful steward of the things that you give us through hardship, through trial, through difficulty conflict God, whether believe with believers or with non-believers I, I pray Lord that you might help God help us to see even today as Jonathan Edwards tried so long ago to to see that day of our death and as Moses said teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom God teach us that our days are few and that their day will be the end and, and help us to keep in mind Keep friend and center, God, what matters most. We may we not be caught up in the, in the trivial. We may we not be caught up in those things that just waste our time and dull our life away. But we may we realize how, how crucial friends are. And ultimately, O oh Lord, how crucial you are in your word. So bring us your book. Let it, let it resonate in our hearts that we might die in that day. A faithful servants of Christ who have fought the good fight, who have finished the course, who have kept the faith. Because we know that in the future You have laid up for us the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to us on that day. And not only to Paul, is what he said, but also to all who have loved His appearing. God, that crown is what we are aiming for, is what we are shooting for. It is our greatest delight. It's our greatest treasure. I pray You'd help us keep that and focus our greatest treasure. So help us these days with faithful friends as church family and help us show of your faithfulness to us that we trust you in great ways. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.